0: All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter (coughs) 6. Just in case. Stay calm. (sighs) So, It's just part of what it means to be human, to want to know your history. All of us want to know our history, We want to know where we come from. We want to feel some sort of significant connection to our past, which is why the sale of ancestry kits has been booming in recent years. Someone somewhere figured out how to combine DNA technology with a deep human desire for historical rootedness. And not only can we learn about our ethnic origins with these new DNA kits, I'm 100% white, by the way, if you were wondering, but we can also learn about our family history. We can build a a digital family tree that allows us to trace our ancestry back hundreds, if not thousands of years. In other words, genealogies are making a comeback. Now this morning's text is a genealogy, and I'm guessing that if it popped up in your daily Bible reading plan, you'd probably skip right past it. And I'm not here to throw stones. I get it. I would probably do the same thing. But here's, here's what you have to understand. Genealogies are only boring when they belong to someone else. Genealogies are only boring when they belong to someone else. There's this weird thing that happens when you study your own genealogy. You feel all these strange emotions, some of them positive, some of them negative. I, for instance, when I did my little family history thing, there was a guy at the last church that I worked at, and his hobby was making genealogies for people. Sad, I know, but that was what he thought was fun. So I very suspiciously said, okay, sure, go ahead and, you know, do this for me. And You know, I'm ashamed to admit to you that I found out that some of my family history traces back up into Canada, right? Isn't it strange that for some reason I feel a sense of shame about something that's completely outside of my control? Well, you might feel the same way once you start digging around in your family history. Maybe if you're from the South and your family's from the South, you'll dig around and find out that your great-great-grandparents owned slaves, completely outside of your control, and yet you will feel a sense of shame, guilt about that. Or maybe conversely, you'll find out that your family, actually, your lineage is through the Quakers, and, and wouldn't you know it, your great-great-grandmother actually worked on the Underground Railroad to help free dozens, if not hundreds, of slaves. And if you found that out, you would say, oh, wow, I feel a sense of, of pride, you know, for something that you didn't do at all. But you would feel that way nonetheless. Or maybe you would dig in and find nothing in particular. Your family were just a bunch of poor sharecroppers, in which case you just sort of move on. Learning about our family history through a genealogy, additionally, will probably not have much of a significant impact on your everyday life. Your family history will probably not change your relationship with the Lord. It probably won't affect your work situation or even affect what time you get up in the morning or go to bed at night. But what about your spiritual genealogy? If you learned about your spiritual heritage, would that make a difference in your life? Well, I think it might. And so as we come to this morning's text, which is kind of a weird text, it's just another weird text in Exodus, Uh, many more to come, by the way, it's one of the reasons why it's weird is because it's an odd pause in this otherwise very hard-hitting narrative. Just boom, 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 boom. It feels like we're just being sort of carried along into the story on, on wave after wave after wave of excitement, and then Moses stops us right here in chapter 6 to give us a genealogy. Well, what do we do with that? Well, let's read it for ourselves. Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Now, I'm going to say these names with confidence, okay? Nobody fact-check me or Google-check me afterwards. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, Shimei, by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years, the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites, According to their generations, Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nephesh, Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as the wife one of his daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, and it has everything that we need for life and godliness. Amen? I have five points for you in this morning's sermon. Note takers, here they are. Genealogies have a particular purpose. Genealogies show God's work in history. Genealogies are records of grace. Genealogies point us to Jesus. And genealogies tell us our lineage. One more time. Genealogies have a particular purpose. Show us God's work in history. Our records of grace point us to Jesus and tell us our lineage. And I'll I'll give them again as we go. Point number one, genealogies have a particular purpose. The commentators don't agree about much in this part of the book of Exodus, but the one thing that they do agree on is that this genealogy has something to do with the priesthood. One of the most important things you can do when you come to a confusing Bible passage is you have to ask yourself, why would the author, if I were the author, why would I put this passage right here? As we've already mentioned, Moses has been telling this sort of harrowing drama, this high, fast paced story, and he pauses here to give the genealogy. And we have to ask, why does he pause here to do it? Well, the commentators all think it has to do with the priesthood, but why? What is the, why here, what does this part of the story have to do with the priesthood? Well, I think you have to pause and remember where we are in the story. Moses and Aaron have just gone before Pharaoh. Things did not go well, and the ten plagues are about to be unleashed. The Lord is about to wreak havoc, and he's going to do it all through Moses and Aaron. Uh, everything that's said, everything that's done, it's all going to come through these two mediators, Moses and And Aaron now you also have to remember that this book is being written after the fact after the exodus Perhaps while the Israelites are traveling through the wilderness So it seems like Moses wants to establish for those who are going to come and hear this story or read this story after him He wants to establish right at the outset right as the plagues begin the legitimacy of Aaron's ministry as a priest Now you might be thinking, why does that matter? Why does it matter, his lineage as a priest? Well, this is one of the interesting things about genealogies is that in the ancient world, a genealogy sort of served as a resume. It kind of established you in the proper line. And if you are going to be the high priest of Israel, people need to know that you really are the guy that's supposed to be in that position. You really have to be descended from Levi, the leader of the Levitical tribe. We're gonna talk about that more here in a minute. Now, you'll notice as we read through that, um, that genealogy that we do not get the names of all of the 12 sons of Israel, right? Remember Jacob, whose name was changed, changed to Israel? He had 12 sons, and all those 12 sons came to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, when you start reading this genealogy, it feels like you're about to get a genealogy of all 12 tribes of Israel. You got Reuben, firstborn, got it. Then you got Simeon. You're like, okay, one, two. And then you move to Levi. And then it stops at Levi. It gives you the lineage of Levi, and then it moves on. Why even give the first two if you're just going to stop at number three? I'm not sure. To me, it feels like, as the firstborn, Moses sort of has to give an account for them. You know, here's Reuben, here's Simeon. But because of their sin and their lack of faithfulness, it's almost as if Moses is saying, the Lord passed them over for the priesthood. The thirdborn, Levi, is the one who has been appointed to the priesthood, and then then Moses trots out his lineage so that we can see that Aaron is very much a part of that clan. He is legitimate as the first high priest of Israel. Now, to be clear, although Aaron is the main focus in this genealogy, that's not the only thing that's happening in this genealogy. One of the cool things about the Bible, and guys, you're only gonna understand this if you actually read the Bible, okay? It's uh, kind of like Lord of the Rings, which I'm loathe to admit, but uh, you know, People who read Lord of the Rings, they say that you're always just reading Lord of the Rings. You're always just reading. And as you do, you, every time you pass through it, you find something new and cool and different and genius that Tolkien was doing in those books. Well, even more so, infinitely more so with the Bible. Every time you read the Bible, you see something new and cool and different and amazing. The more you look, the closer you look, the more you begin to see, even in a passage like this. In this genealogy, for example, you see the connection of the Judaic line with the Levitical line, and I've just put you to sleep with that statement, right? What does that matter to you? Well, it should matter a lot because the Judaic line, the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah was the kingly line. Every king in Israel came out of the tribe of Judah. The Levitical line is the priestly line. All the priests in Israel come out of the priestly line of Levi, But Jesus comes not just as a king and not just as a priest. Jesus comes as the priest king. And what we see right here in this genealogy is that very early on in the story of the Bible, this person marries that person, a Levite marries a (laughs) Judahite. And we see the merging of the Judaic lines and the Levitical lines, the kingly line and the priestly line. It's a hint pointing forward to what's to come in Jesus. Before we move on to point number one, I just wanna remind you that the authors of the Bible, especially as divinely inspired by God himself, are not stupid. They're not clunky. You might come to this after you've read you know, so many John Grisham novels, and you might try to make your way through the book of Exodus, and this might feel like disjointed, and you may not understand why this genealogy is at this point in the story, and isn't it disrupting the flow of the narrative, and you might be tempted to render a judgment on it, But when you look at things from a different perspective, you actually begin to see the genius of the construction of this book. Moses put this thing at this point in the story for a very particular reason. And just because it doesn't make immediate sense to you as you read it does not mean that it is not there for a reason. Every genealogy has a particular purpose. The genealogy of Jesus in the, book of David, uh, in the book of Matthew, why is that there? Because it's establishing Jesus in the lineage of the Messiah, in the lineage of King David. Or you can go earlier in the Bible, you can find the, the, the genealogies of Cain and Seth. Why are they there? Well, they're there to serve as contrasting pairs. Cain, his lineage moves towards the flood. It begins with murder and violence and blood and it moves towards more, be- more death. But Seth, his line, moves towards faithfulness. Now, you may be reading the book of Genesis and you may come across this genealogy and you may not understand why it's there, but it doesn't mean it's not there for a reason. Always assume when you're reading the Bible that God knows how to write a story. Point number two, genealogies show God's work in history. Most of our favorite fairy tales from childhood begin with the same phrase. Who can tell me? What is it? Once upon a time but not the gospel. The gospel does not begin with our imagination. The gospel begins with real people, created by a real God, in a real place. And the events that unfold in this drama actually happened in history. I hope you feel the weight of that. I hope you wrestle with that as you read the Bible this year. As you're reading through the flood account and the the Tower of Babel and and the, the raising of the dead and the healing of the paralytic and the axe head floating in the water, I hope that you stop and you say, This actually happened. This is not a myth. This is history. The gospel is not just an idea. It's a historically verifiable fact. Jesus really lived. Even the most ardent critics of Christianity must admit that Jesus really lived and that he really died. They may not agree with us that he got out of the grave, but one day they will. Oh, It will all be empirically verified one day. He really got out of the grave. He really appeared to over 500 witnesses. When you read the documents of the New Testament, these people are not writing as if they are creating myth. They are writing history. Go and read the, the Gospel of Luke, or just the first chapter this afternoon if you have time. He says, I have set out to give you an orderly account, O honorable Theophilus, right? He says, I'm doing history here. I want you to remember these facts, that these things actually happen. In the book of Acts, it's like a journalist relentlessly trying to document everything that happened after the ascension of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the apostles. The gospel is the fulfillment, not just of some ethereal idea, but of a historical promise Adam really lived. He really did plunge all of humanity into sin. God really did make a promise that one day he was going to crush the head of the serpent, and Jesus really came and really did it. The serpent's head is really destroyed. Back in Genesis 15, let connect this back to the genealogy, sorry, I kind of went crazy there for a minute. Back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham that his people were going to be exiled. They were going to be in Egypt. But he told them that they were only going to be there for a certain period of time. Do you remember how long it was? Four generations. Four generations. He says, in the four, this is Genesis 15, uh, verses 13 through 16. You can reference it later. In the fourth generation, they shall return here. God promised that the people of Israel would only suffer for four generations. So one of the purposes of this genealogy is to establish the fact that God, in fact, did keep his promise. Moses is the fourth generation removed from Jacob. Now, point number three, a genealogy establishes or keeps a record of grace. Whenever you read the genealogies of Scripture, You find equal parts black and white, evil and righteousness, heroes and screw-ups. You can just look at some of the names listed in this genealogy. You have Reuben. He was guilty of incest. Downstream from Aaron, you're going to find the names in verse 23 of Nadab and Abihu. Do you remember who they were? These were the priests who offered up strange fire at the altar of the Lord and they were consumed for their disobedience. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 10. A little bit later in the lineage, you read about Korah. Do you remember the story of Korah's rebellion? Number 16, this is kind of crazy. Korah, was in the lineage of the Levites, the priests. These were the ones who were zealous for the glory of God and the holiness of God's people. When Moses came down from the mountain and saw the golden calf, and (laughs) I've been gone for five minutes and y'all are already worshiping another god, (laughs) the Lord said, okay, everyone who participated in this must die. Do you remember who carried out that act of vengeance, that act of justice? It was the Levites. And yet later, in number 16, we find Korah, along with other Levites, trying to rise up in rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and that led to even more death and destruction in the camp of Israel. And it's not just Aaron's genealogy that's full of sinners and screw-ups. When you study the genealogy of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, oh, wouldn't it be tempting to sanitize that family lineage and that's, that's oftentimes what <laughs> a lot of the genealogies of the ancient world are very much like that. They try to airbrush out all the nasty parts. <laughs> Even if you look in like Europe, medieval Europe, it's all about maintaining a pure family bloodline. We, we can't talk about this person's sin or that person's issues. We want to p- pretend that the bloodline of the crown is as pure as the driven snow. How much more would we be tempted to try to sanitize the genealogy of Jesus, God in the flesh, Savior of the world? But when you study his genealogy, you find that it is anything but pure. It is full of liars and murderers and prostitutes and more. One author, speaking on the genealogy of Jesus, puts it like this. The genealogy of Jesus shows us that he came from those that he came for. He came from those he came for. Basically, he comes from sinners to save sinners. Not that he himself is a sinner. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for that ministry. So the drama of redemption, when you read the Bible, it is constantly moving forward through people, and people are fallen, people are sinful, people are rebellious. Abraham, David, Tamar, Gideon, Levi, Korah, you, me, and God is not embarrassed by this, not even a bit. It's quite the opposite, in fact. We talked about this last week. God chooses the lowly, foolish, sinful, despised, broken, sinful people of this world. I said sinful twice on purpose. So that his grace will be magnified. The, the bright white light of his grace shines even more brightly against the black backdrop against our, uh, of our sin and brokenness. So, this genealogy is a fitting record of God's grace. Point number four, genealogies point us to Jesus. If you're doing your Bible reading in a year plan, I hope you take note of how many genealogies there are. There are a lot. The Bible is big on genealogies. 340 in all. 340, that's a lot. Now, my hope is that after today's sermon, you know more about them and and why they matter, and you'll be a little more encouraged to study them when you come across them. But the main thing you need to know about this genealogy in the book of Exodus and every other genealogy is that it points us forward to Jesus. Friends, that's true of the whole Bible. If you're ever reading a passage and you're like, I don't understand what's happening here. I'm having trouble making sense of this. Just remember that Jesus himself said that every part of the Bible is ultimately about him. Everything in the Old Testament is ultimately pointing forward to his work in the New Testament. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to some disciples on the road to Emmaus and he said, listen, everything in the law, everything in the prophets, everything in in the book of Moses, it's all pointing forward to me. Even the genealogies, especially the genealogies. Let me show you what I mean. We, earlier in the service, read the seventh chapter of Hebrews, which deals extensively with the priesthood, and you were probably sitting there like, I have no idea what's happening right now. Who is this guy, Melchizedek or Melchizedek? Good job, sister. You just picked one and said it confidently and repeated it, boom. And you were like, what is, well, let me, let me just sort of break down Hebrews 7 and how it relates to this morning's text The author of Hebrews is dealing with the passing away of the old covenant and the law. These Jews were being persecuted. They were considering going back to the temple, going back to Judaism. He says, you can't go back because there's nothing to go back to. And one of the main things that he says have been done away with is the priesthood. The priesthood that we're talking about being established in this morning's text. The priesthood of Levi with the first high priest being Aaron. So here's how his argument goes. He says, a priest, is someone who has to stand between a sinful man, that's you and me, and a holy God, that's Yahweh. A priest is a mediator of a broken relationship. You understand that conceptually. If, if a, a husband and a wife are fighting and they need help, they call in a mediator, someone to help work through the sin issues in the relationship. That's what the high priest is between God and sinful man. But the mediator, this high priest, He himself, under the old covenant, needs a mediator. He needs mediation. He needs someone to step in and fix his broken relationship with God because he's a sinner. What that means is Levi and Aaron and the rest of the priests that come after them, they could have never been the final answer to sin. They all had to die because of their sin. And so the author of Hebrews 7 says we need a better mediator we need a perfect mediator we need a sinless mediator not Aaron not Levi not anyone who comes after them it must be a true and better priest and his argument is that Jesus is that better priest in the line of Melchizedek and you're like well who on earth is Melchizedek well Melchizedek was this priest who existed before the priesthood was established What do you do with that, I don't know. But apparently, there was a priest, his name was Melchizedek. Abraham offered him a tithe in the Old Testament. So before his sons had sons who established a priesthood, there was another priest of Yahweh called Melchizedek. And so the author of Hebrews, without trying to understand all of that perfectly this morning, the author of Hebrews comes along and he goes, you know, there was a priesthood before there was the law of Moses. There was a priesthood before there was a Levi and an Aaron, and Jesus, is the high priest in that order. That's why he talks about coming from the line of Judah. He's like, you're trying to understand how Jesus could be our great high priest if he comes from the line of Judah and not the line of Levi. Well, he comes from a different priestly line, the line of Melchizedek. If you have more questions about that, come talk to me later. Or talk about it at lunch with each other. But the point is, Jesus is the true and better high priest of a much better order he will never manufacture idols at the foot of the mountain like Aaron did. you believe that? Moses was gone for five minutes. Moses is, uh, Aaron is supposed to be the high priest, and the people go to Aaron, the high priest, and they say, he died up there. <laughs> what are we gonna do? We need to make a new God. And Aaron is like, no, no, come on, stop it, you guys. Yahweh is the real God. And then they go, seriously, and he goes, all right, bring me your gold. And then they make an idol, big golden calf, and they go, this is Yahweh. He is the one who rescued us from slavery in Egypt. If you're trusting in the priesthood of Aaron to be your salvation, you are damned because the priesthood of Aaron builds golden uh, idols and calves at the foot of the mountain. He cannot be the final answer. Jesus has to be greater than the priesthood of Levi. Levi was known for venting his wrath and anger in murder, Jesus does not do that. He comes, rather than venting his wrath, he suffers the wrath of God on the cross and gives up his own life rather than taking the lives of others in order to save us, the people who in no way deserve it. Jesus is the true and better high priest because he is not like Nadab and Abihu. He never offers up unworthy sacrifices. He offers up himself. A perfectly righteous, spotless lamb and his sacrifice does not have to be repeated every time you sin you don't have to go up to the temple every Yom Kippur and make your sacrifices when Jesus is your sacrifice his sacrifice is a one-time deal one and done Jesus is the true and better priest because he is better than Korah in that he does not lead a rebellion against God's people he is the one who comes to quell the rebellion He is the one who comes to put down the rebellion. That is either good news or bad news depending on how you respond to him and his ministry. The gospel says that we are all rebels. We are all at enmity with God. We've rejected him, we've despised him, our throats are open graves. What we deserve is hell and wrath for our rebellion and Jesus comes and he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Every single one of you deserve to be cut down and thrown into the fire because of your sin. Pause. But the king has issued a decree of grace and mercy. And the king has declared that if you will lay down your arms and if you will stop rebelling against his righteous rule and reign, he will receive you lovingly, freely, joyfully, eternally back into his kingdom. That is the priesthood of Jesus. He's here to mediate a reconciliation between the king and the rebels. So my prayer this morning, brothers and sisters, is that you realize that you need a priest. There's nothing more sad to see than a relationship that is utterly broken and the people in it do not realize it. A husband and a wife that can't stop fighting and they will not open up, they will not get help. A parent and a child, Sin is destroying their relationship. They won't admit it, they won't acknowledge it, they won't go to counseling, they won't talk to their pastor. A boss and an employee, we're just gonna put our heads beneath the sand and act like everything's okay until eventually it all blows up in our face. That's what human beings do. We, we try to live every second of our lives when we are lost and dead in sin as if one day we are not going to have to give an account. But one day we are going to have to give an account. One day, the judge of all the earth, the one who is guaranteed to do what is right, he is going to come back. And when he comes back, he is going to bring his justice with him. Now, if you think that you are ready to meet your maker and your judge without the help of Jesus, Godspeed. But brothers and sisters, I hope we know that that's not true. I hope we understand that the only way we can stand before a righteous judge is if we have Jesus, our perfect high priest, standing there to mediate for us. I hope we realize before we die that we need him to fix this broken relationship. And not only do we need him to do it, but that he wants to do it and he's capable of doing it. There's nothing worse than going to an incompetent counselor who can in no way help you. Jesus is not like that. He is fully capable. He is fully, he's God in the flesh. He's been to hell. He's been to death. He passed through it and came out the other side victorious. There's nothing in your life that he can't fix. There's no problem that he can't solve. There's no relationship so damaged that he can't heal it. Even and especially the relationship damage that your sin has caused with your maker. And he has thrown open the doors of grace and he is calling you today to respond by faith. Point number five, genealogies demonstrate lineage. So before we close, I wanna get out ahead of a wrong application that you might make from this morning's sermon. You might hear me say, well, Jesus is the fulfillment of this genealogy, therefore genealogies don't matter anymore. That's not what I'm saying. That's actually the opposite of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that genealogies actually matter a lot. It's just important that you understand that the gospel tells us that we now have a new way of establishing our lineage our lineage now is established not by blood, not by DNA, but by faith, by the gospel, by the blood of Jesus. There are a lot of Christians today who still want to do genealogies, but the way they do it is through baptisms and bishops. Baptisms, those would be like The Church of Christ and Landmarkus. if you've never heard about them, don't worry. But one of the things that they try to do is they try to say, well, I was baptized by someone who 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 was baptized. And they try to trace their lineage all the way back to the apostles that way. You also have the Roman Catholics. They try to establish their Jesus lineage through the Bishop of Rome, otherwise known as the Pope. So baptisms and bishops, they say, well, this bishop was appointed by that bishop, which was appointed by that bishop, which was appointed, all the way back until you get to Peter, ostensibly the first pope. Well friends, not only is that incorrect, but we just don't even have to do that. The The Bible is really, really clear about this actually. The way that you know you are in the lineage of Jesus, the genealogy of the gospel, is if you preach and believe the same gospel that Jesus preached and believed. If you preach and believe the same gospel that he gave the disciples, the gospel that has been passed down, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. You may have been baptized in this church or that church. You may have come up under this ministry or that ministry. You may have had this discipleship or that discipleship. Maybe you were dunked or the water didn't come up all the way past your nose. Come see me afterwards. If that's you, we'll get that straightened out. But at the end of the day, none of that really matters. What matters, as you sit in this room right now, if you're thinking, okay, Sean, I wanna make sure that I am in the lineage of Jesus, that my genealogy goes all the way back to his finished work on the cross, it's simple, just ask yourself, do I believe the gospel? the one true gospel not the gospel of the Mormons which says that Jesus was the weird half-brother of Satan. Not the gospel of the Roman Catholics, which says that you can work your way into salvation. Not the gospel of Southern American evangelicalism. I'm talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you know that you have turned away from your sins and you've trusted in in His finished work, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, under the authority of Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, if that's what you believe, then you are in the genealogy of Jesus. So as we close, I just want to be honest with you guys and tell you I didn't want to preach this genealogy. Okay? It was hard. It was scary. At one point, I started seeing colors that I didn't even know were in the color spectrum. I had books spread out all around me on the desk. I was lost and confused. Amber had to come bring me food. I wasn't sleeping at night. I mean, I had the the corkboard up on the wall with the red string everywhere, I started smoking. No, I'm just kidding. It was crazy. But when I remember that really it was all about Jesus, it really simplified everything, right? So I pray that as we've wrapped up our time together in this genealogy, that you are strengthened and encouraged by God's word, that you see that it is completely sufficient and trustworthy, and that even the weird parts, if you'll give it the time and attention it deserves, even the weird parts, can really minister to your soul and strengthen you for the task ahead. (coughs) Let me close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask for your help this morning as we began to gather together. We ask you to be present with us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, we praise you because it feels like you have answered our prayer. You have helped us to taste and see that you are good. So we pray that this will not just be a temporary, emotionally fleeting experience that we have, but that we will take this with us out into the world, that we will let everyone that we come into contact with see that you are our greatest treasure, our highest good, our deepest love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.